hello everybody and welcome to uh, the Centre for Rural Criminology's uh, vodcast podcast series and uh, today we're very pleased to welcome uh, Willie Clack from the University of South Africa and I'm wondering Willie if you just start by, uh, by providing us with a brief introduction about yourself, the work that you've done in the past and the work that you're doing currently. Uh, hi Alistair and Kyle, um, yeah I've been uh, in academia, I started my career in corrections, I moved to academia in 1992 and uh, yeah I also I have a fortunate opportunities in life to, to have two lives. I'm a farmer and I'm an academic. So uh, eventually I, my whole career was about corrections, but around about 2000, I had the opportunity to start working with rural crime in South Africa. The first opportunities I had was with guys from the United States, University of North Michigan. And we started doing research on uh, illegal uh, wildlife trafficking, uh, which were focused on more on, eventually we decided to do our research on rhino and, and uh, elephant trafficking. And then we discovered that it's a much bigger problem than only elephants and, 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 uh, and rhinos. And then we went into small things like uh, abalone and um, then uh, birds, snakes, all those things. And, and that's where the whole, my whole interest into the whole rural crime actually started. And uh, with my adventures in agriculture and being uh, highly involved in organized agriculture, in 2006, I got introduced to the National Livestock Theft Prevention Forum. And sitting there as an academic, I just realized this, this people are sitting on a mammoth amount of information that they don't know what to do about. Uh, I mean, they, they, they collect all this data, they collect all the information, but it's simply being used within a forum. No one talks about it, no one publishes about it. And uh, I originally started to, to write publications in the popular journals, journals in South Africa in uh, in Afrikaans, which is not which you guys will not be able to understand. And uh, then my colleagues started and say started saying to me, oh, "Well, I, we think you should move this into the academic direction." And uh, yeah, I started publishing in in, in, in livestock and livestock theft, uh, which is kind of like a real passion for me. Uh, ended up today as the national chairperson of the Livestock Fair Prevention Forum in South Africa, uh, with a high involvement still in other spheres of uh, organized agriculture uh, in the red meat industry. Uh, so that's my background. That's where I come from. And that's, uh, and I still farm today. And uh, where I am today, talking to you guys, I'm in the city. So I, I changed my a venue from farm to city for this week, and then I'm going back. <laughs> I guess we'll unpack this a little bit as we as we go. But one of the key things is notwithstanding that uh, you started off looking at wildlife and very particularly wildlife found in Africa, elephants and and others, but also looking at some of the livestock. There are some of the lessons that can be learnt from your research that uh, is equally applicable anywhere else in the world, like the motivations for the theft in the first place. Mm. Yeah, I do think that. Um, the motivation for livestock theft, and when we look at this whole thing, and we look at the whole environmental crime series, I mean, and you look at the, the, the four environmental crime series, and I think the most applicable one is routines activities. And um, when you get to the motivation of the offender, I do think it's my from my research that I found is that you cannot really distinguish between a motivated offender and the object because in, when it gets to economic crimes, the motivation for the offender is normally the object, uh, which, which uh, is kind of like the driving force and the motivation for this person to commit this crime. But I always 
do use the examples for people and say when it gets to livestock pest and you compare it to other economic crimes is if I steal your cell phone, if I if I steal your TV or whatever appliances you have in your home with any technology, the surest thing that I do know is that it immediately loses its value. I cannot steal a cell phone phone for the value of $100 and expect to sell it for the value of $100 because it immediately loses value, mm -hmm. which is totally different when it gets to livestock. Uh, livestock never loses its value. If I steal your cow, or I steal your bull, or I steal your calf, or whatever, it's got a value. I can sell it off to an abattoir. I can go and sell it at an auction. I can sell it to someone else, or I can either slaughter it and use it for myself, or I can use it for breeding purposes. Which means that in the case of livestock, it never loses value. And I do think that's the greatest distinguisher between livestock pet and any other, other crimes that's committed uh, in rural areas because uh, of this whole motivation. And we can go back and then we can argue as that the main driver for livestock is greed. And then I want to share another thing with you is because it's one of the things that really interested me uh, when I was still doing a lot of technical assessments for uh, criminal justice in Africa, uh, we had the opportunity to go to a lot of African countries and we visited from police to justice to, to corrections. And we went in the corrections and uh, we ended up, uh, myself and the guys that's doing the, the, the research with us is, is to, uh, when we are in a prison, to categorize the prisons. And, we ended up going to say, okay, who's between 20 and 25? You guys stand to this side. Who's between 30, 25 and 30? So we did that age category. And then you end up with these people, these criminals in prison over the age of 60. Uh, and then you ask them now, what crimes did you commit? And you have like a 90, 95% chance that it's either murder or livestock fair. And then we went and, and, and looked at the whole profile of these guys. We did we did discover that actually when it gets to livestock fair is these guys don't never rehabilitate. They will keep on stealing livestock until the day that they die. Uh, it's not like your normal criminal, economic criminal who steals out of houses, house break and theft and robbery and those, where the criminal career has a tendency to stop around about the age of 40, 45, where it starts diminishing. When it gets to livestock, it just carries on. It never stops. And up until today, we still see that pattern. Uh, in South Africa, because livestock theft is a big thing, uh, we have a, an agreement with correctional services that uh, well, this was until two years ago because then the whole uh, I computer system crashed. But we got a list of all released inmates that was jailed or incarceration for livestock. And it was totally true, as, as we could predict it. If John has been released from prison for livestock, you had an 80% chance that he will commit livestock theft again within the first 12 months after being released. And uh, so we're working here with a very unique, not a, a very unique crime, and we, we're working with a very unique perpetrator. Another thing that we, uh, from our research that we did- find If I can just interrupt you there and ask, why do you think the repeat offending is so salient in this particular group? No, I don't. I don't know why they why they keep on repeating. But I do want to relate it back to the value, um, to the value of the object in this case, uh, the the livestock, and uh, which which actually is a big uh, motivating factor for these guys. So that's what we would what we would say is why this is so. Then 
Another unique thing that you find in South Africa that you don't find in any other country in the world is the fact that we keep track of all our livestock theft cases. We keep track of all livestock stolen. So each and every year, after each and every quarter when our livestock, when our, our cases get published, we know exactly how many cattle are stolen, how many sheep are stolen, how many goats are stolen, how many chickens, how many horses are stolen. And uh, I haven't found this in any other country in the world that they keep that information. I mean, as, as in, believe me or not, as they, our South African police still keep this by hand. It's a hand system. It's not a technology system. So uh, we are highly involved with these people. We talk to them on a weekly basis. And uh, so we get this information. So we know who the perpetrators is that's been released. We know who the new guys on the block is. We know how much they steal. And that's how you carry on. But we also need to acknowledge that uh, just like in all parts of the world. There's guys that's been stealing livestock for the past 20 years, never been caught. Mm. Everyone knows about them, but... Um, oh, I think, I think you're right, Willie. It is uh, absolutely the case the world over, and certainly here in Australia, the work that I've been doing in Victoria and Kyle's been doing up in New South Wales is the, the sheer lack of reporting. Mm. Uh, and so, therefore, the offenders keep on offending. There's nothing that interrupts or disrupts that, uh, those, those patterns of offending. Yeah. yeah, and to talk more about crime and aggregate in rural spaces, uh, I don't think we keep as as good track of, of the issue of farm crime specifically here. New South Wales does okay, uh, especially since the rural crime prevention team, they'll take dedicated statistics of, you know, how many cattle were stolen in this period or sheep or things like that. But just speaking to rural police officers, not necessarily around cattle theft, because I think the problem pales in comparison, of course, to the amount uh, and actual magnitude of cattle theft in South Africa. But you'll talk to local officers in rural spaces in New South Wales, and they'll know when there's a lot of ram raids or a lot of break and enters or things like that, that a particular person has been released from prison and therefore, you know, they have an expectation of these offenses and where they're coming from. Um, so it sounds very familiar um, in terms of policing more broadly in small mm -hmm. spaces. You know, once people re-enter those spaces, there's an expectation that those offenses will continue to occur or begin to occur again. Yeah, so, but, but actually, and, and just to carry on as, into this whole thing is, I think it was about 2012, uh, 20, 2012, 2013, I had a student coming to me and uh, asked me, I want to do research, but I don't know what to do. I said, well, you know what it is? I need a profile of a livestock birthplace. That's what I want to see. And, uh, oh, well, she worked many, many years on it, and it's been published at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a master's study, and uh, I just convinced her to enroll for the uh, for the awards for the uh, and whatever. So we'll see how it goes and how she mm. is. But um, it gives you a very very good background as to how these people look, how they operate, what they do. Um, things that fascinated me from the study is the fact that. Uh, In 80% of the cases, they don't know the victim. They don't care who the victim is. You know, all those kind of things that you would expect in rural crime, we would all know. But they don't care. It's all about the object. And, um, yeah, routine activities give you all, all the ways and means how they do go about in identifying the animals, how to decide who they're going to... Um, uh, who's, who they're going to, to target, who's going to be the victims. And uh, what fascinated me as well is the fact that why do they repeatedly steal from X and not from Z? What, what's the reason? Why don't they go? I mean, these guys are two farmers farming next to one another, but they only steal from the one. And uh, then you kind of like to determine, but it's, uh, it's a routine and they know the place. They get used to it. They know exactly how it works, how it operates, and they don't want to take a chance to go to the other side uh, or to the other person. And then 
is is all buffer buffer zone theory. How these people tend to keep something between themselves and the and and the targets. How do they how do they go about? I mean, in South Africa, we've determined that uh, it depends on the mobility of of the offender. The more mobile they get, the the bigger the larger the buffer zone. Yes. Uh, this guy is on foot. Uh, you have a chance of around about the 15 to 20 kilometers that they will that they will offend. And as soon as they get into the smaller little trucks, it gets to like 50 kilometers and whatever. And the moment they get into big stuff, they get into big vehicles, big trucks, 18 wheelers, interlinks as we call them. I mean, the, we had a case in South Africa where cattle was moved for 1,100 kilometers in one night Stolen on a farm and sold in an auction. Uh, I do know about the whole White Bull story in, in Armidale and, and, and the whole uh, theft from Queensland down to South Australia. But um, yeah, we, we still have these cases where lots and lots of animals are stolen. Uh, we just had a case now, about two or four weeks, three weeks ago, uh, where a whole truckload of animals were stolen. 91. Wiener calf stolen. So you're looking at a million rand. I mean, mm. a million rand in South Africa is a lot of money. Uh, yeah, in Australian dollars, it might be around about 100,000 uh, uh, Australian dollars. But still, I mean, if you look at the economy and you look how it translates, uh, a million is a million. Mm. It doesn't matter in what uh, currency you, you, you look at. I was fascinated by your observation that a lot of the offenders will concentrate themselves in a small area. And a few years ago, I came across this, um, this interesting uh, comparison of a theory from the uh, natural sciences and its application to criminal offending. And it's called optimal foraging theory and, and adopts that notion that animals, when they find a food source, will just stay there for as long as the food source persists before they move on yeah. because it saves energy, it saves that uh, risk of being taken by another predator and so on and so forth. And that overlap with a fandy where they'll just focus. As long as that is uninterrupted, there's no capable guardianship, uh, all of those other key um, matters around crime prevention, they'll stay there and keep on offending. And this leads on to uh, one of the other points that you made and it's that there were some people who don't know uh, the, the people that they're victimising but conversely, at least here in Australia, yeah. there's a lot of farmers who know who the offender is. They know it's John's boy down the street who's knocking off three or four sheep every now and again, but they also know that he's armed to the hilt and he's got a hot head and he's likely to come back in the middle of the night. And they don't want to do that for fear of that revenge or that retribution. And I'm just wondering to what degree that might also occur in South Africa. You know what? Uh, it, it does occur. Uh, where we do, where the people do know, but, and I think that's where, where there's a lot of similarities in the whole of the world. You can go and read research and whatever, and then you will find that we know who the perpetrator is, but we're not prepared to go and give this guy up because of fear, mm. uh, one of the things. And then, um, and, uh, as, as well as your standing in the community, I mean, as now you go and you go and, uh, accuse John's son of stealing whatever, and uh, you're breaking up family relations, you're breaking up a good community relations, all those kind of things. And for that reason, we don't report the crime. And, and, and I think that's quite obvious all over the world that, that those things do happen. And uh, yeah, it does annoy me. Uh, I must be honest with you, so I, just had, uh, I just had the case in, in my own family three weeks ago, four weeks ago, where um, animals were stolen. And uh, because of the CCTV cameras that's up in the rural areas in South Africa and all these kind of things, quickly determined who's the perpetrator. Being a white lady, uh, she stays really eight kilometers from where I'm from. And uh, what did they decide? No, they're not going to report crime to the the police because of all the standings in the community and how we feel and what we do. So, uh, yeah, I do think that's a world phenomenon. And uh, as long as that's going to be our attitude, 
uh, we're not going to make addition to livestock. Yeah, in New South Wales, it was um, one of the most common reasons for not reporting was fear of retaliation because they know the offender and not necessarily just physical retaliation, but social, uh, you know, cultural retaliation. That is ostracism or, you know, being seen as someone who dobs someone in or something like that. But going back to what you're saying, kind of about the magnitude and scale and the kind of type of career criminal that you, that you find over there, it sounds like there's a bit more of an organized element to this issue in South Africa. Is that the case? Definitely. As we have, over the years, what we determine is that about 13% of our livestock theft is for survival. I mean, it's because of as, as for pure survival, as, as I need to put food on the table, I need to provide, and those kinds. And, and we have a name for it in South Africa. It's called potslachten, which is actually um, an Afrikaans word. But if you directly translate it, it means that I am slaughtering for my pot. I mean, I'm, I'm slaughtering to eat. I'm stealing to eat. And those are 13%. But 80, 87% of our livestock food is organized in nature. If you go and look at the definition of organized crime. Uh, and what we've also found is that it's normally these syndicates form and they dissolve very quickly. As I have identified, say, for instance, I want to go and steal 20 head of cattle from uh, John, but I need the expertise of other three or four guys, I will get them in. We will do the, uh, we will commit the offense. We will steal whatever we want. And after we've uh, distributed or the, the, the proceeds of the crime between ourselves, we just disappear and we get out of one of our lives. And then, and say three months time or whatever, I identify someone else and then I get another group of people together. But it is strange as, as how these people connect. And a lot of their connections comes from the best universities in the world. And that we call prison. prison. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's where they learn. That's where they get the whole social minds going. That's where they start socializing. And that is the, the area with which they function. So, yeah, you will find them there. It sounds though like there's no continuous kind of traditional organized crime group, but individuals involved in this space that tend to aggregate with one another, commit the crime, you know, dissolve, and then find another group, commit the crime, dissolve, which might make it a bit more difficult to address. Yeah, but uh, you know what is, I do think that all over the world, we do have this problem of, uh, of actually catching the perpetrators. It's, it's not easy, and, and, and putting them behind bars is, not, is, is even more difficult. But um, what uh, also distinguishes South Africa, I mean, I, I've been in, 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 in many parts of the world and whatever, is that uh, South Africa has got a dedicated livestock fed and endangered species unit within the police force. Mm. We've got 90 units all over the country, uh, coordinated by uh, each unit. Uh, each province has got a coordinator, and then every province has got its own stock units. And depending on the amount of stock stolen in that particular province or region, uh, will de determine the amount of, uh, of, of units you do have. We have a a province in, or the Eastern Cape province in South Africa is prone to livestock theft. 22 of the, of the units is in that uh, particular province. And then uh, the more west you go, it's, it's like in Australia, the more west you go in South Africa as well, the more arid it becomes, the, the less animals there are, and then automatically there's less uh, livestock theft. But uh, yeah. I do think that's a distinguishing factor. And we invited people from the US, from Australia to come over to South Africa to come and investigate, see how we're doing it, what we're doing. And uh, maybe that will uh, trigger something in, in, in Australia. 
I do know that uh, I think uh, in Victoria, uh, you also have a dedicated unit for rural crimes, uh, Alistair. Yeah, there's a farm crime uh, liaison officers unit. One of the challenges mm -hmm. is that they're not all dedicated full-time officers. So when there is occasions where there's volume crimes occurring in a rural location, that will become the, the, the focus of activity. Mm. Rather than other, other places like New South Wales or in South Africa or in many places in the UK where yeah. all they do is the rural crime. So yeah. that itself yeah. is a challenge, yeah. Yeah, farm crime specifically. I think uh, um, the New South Wales police... Uh, definition is farm that impacts upon the function of the pastoral agricultural and aquacultural industries and they're very adamant that that is the only thing that they focus on so not crime in rural communities but crime that impacts on these industries and so having that dedicated team is uh, quite uh, novel out here in Australia thus far but I must say that over the course of the last 10 years uh, policing organisations the world over have gone ahead in leaps and bounds. You know, it's now much more at the at the focal point of decision makers than it was even just yeah. five years ago in many jurisdictions, where senior police officers based in capital cities are now recognising that there are real harms that occur from this type of offending. Yeah. So the New South Wales Police unrolled Operation Stock Check uh, almost a year ago now. And basically that is the kind of pulling over of, of vehicles carrying stock and ensuring that the stock are identifiable and they can prove ownership. And this started in New South Wales. And I'm pretty sure it, every single state's police force, it's a bit tricky here, right? Because you have state-based police forces, you have the AFP, but the state-based police forces often don't play to the same tune but on this particular issue increasingly they seem to be really sharing in information and sharing in approaches to manage the issue so operation stock check is one example of something that has gone australia wide now except for south australia my understanding is because there's some legal uh, boundaries that they cannot uh, pull over these vehicles there so that stops them from doing so um but Alistair's right, the world over, but focused in Australia for a second, is that um, there's definitely some momentum and attention behind actually intervening, particularly, I think, being driven a lot by biosecurity threats and stuff like that, but definitely more attention, even at a policy level. Just in terms of, uh, Willie, just in terms of um, policing in local communities, I'm just wondering if you could comment for a little while on what level of engagement there is between those local uh, rule-based police and the communities that they serve? What's the sort of the level of interaction and engagement with farmers? You know, there's, uh, what happens in South Africa is that we do have um, community policing forums uh, and they are within the rural areas as well. Uh, what we do find is, and this is based on the history of South Africa, is that, uh, it's actually only the farmers themselves that's involved in the community police forums. The rest of the communities is not highly involved. So you kind of like get a divide. Although the farmers are highly involved, the rest of the communities are not. So the people in the rural towns is not involved. Um, the people in the, as we call it, the townships is not involved. So you do have a lot, you, you do have a big lack of of information sharing because the information is just within one group uh, in, in society. But, and I would always say is this depends and it will differ from location to location, from police station to police station. And it depends on your type of personalities. You get guys that really wants to be involved and they're highly involved and they make a difference. And then you get the others that just simply, you know what, it's not my job, but I don't want to be involved, I don't want to do any, anything to do with it. And, uh, yeah, I just wrote a paper for um, the International Criminal Justice Review, and uh, I did a, a kind of like research on the use of CCTV and the involvement of the people and how they go about And... Uh, it was, I was quite astounded by the fact that uh, CCTV, oh, well, it's just been introduced in our rural areas for the past three, four years. Uh, 
had no impact. Uh, there's, there's no reduction in crime. I mean, it's, it depends on areas. In one area, crime goes down, and the other ones, I mean, the one that had, had the biggest impact on crime, it had a 33% reduction in livestock theft. But on the contrary, there was an increase in other jurisdictions of 43% with the same technology. So the question is, uh, does CCTV or all these things make a real impact? And my finding is no. It will depend on your involvement of your community with your criminal justice system. If that's not functioning, it's not going to make any difference. Yeah, it gets back to that classic risk-reward analysis. If you don't think that you're going to get caught, or if you're the persistent motivated offender, mm. uh, the offending will keep on keep on occurring. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the issue. Willie, can we backtrack for a second? We probably should have opened with this. Can you tell us a little bit for particularly Australian viewers or viewers not from South Africa about the scale, the sheer magnitude of the problem out there and maybe how it compares, for instance, to your knowledge of Australia and things like that? You know, uh, currently in South Africa, uh, the magnitude is we're losing around about 66,000 of cattle per year. Uh, which if you go and calculate it, it boils down to around about 198 heads of cattle per day, which is quite significant. If you go and look at, at sheep, you're looking around about uh, 110,000, which calculates to around about 254 heads of sheep per day. Mm. And then we do go to goats as well, and uh, they are around about 50,000 per year, which goes to around about 160 per day. So that's a magnitude of the whole problem in the country. Um, and uh, yeah, economically, we're looking at about, in our currency, around about 1 billion, uh, 1.4 billion rand per year. But the thing that you never need to forget is the fact that only 23% of livestock theft in South Africa is reported. Mm. So 77% of our livestock theft is not reported. So when we talk about these numbers and these figures, we're talking about those that are reported and that we know of. I mean, there's 77% that we don't know. Uh, and we, but we do believe that the ones that we don't know of it's those ones with little magnitude. It's the smaller amounts, it's the one head, one head of cattle, two heads of cattle, or whatever. Uh, the moment these things tend to get big, people tend to report it too. Um, but what we also found that is with the whole argument of retaliation and those things, is if people do find that it is John that stole their animals and they do get the animals back, they don't report it as well. Mm. Or, or, or alternatively, they know that the next door neighbor, John, has stolen six head of sheep, but they also know that they've been uh, put into the freezer for, <laughs> for consumption. Yeah. So they don't actually, there's no sort of checking checks and balances with the legal abattoirs. There's no signs of an illegal abattoir being towed around. They've just been butchered and uh, yeah. the carcass is dumped. You know, as, as, as what, what happened, what we have, very much in South Africa, and I can, I will, uh, I will send you some photos uh, if you want to. But it's it's not beautiful to see, and uh, it's not for the sensitive people, because in South Africa we we have this thing that we call um, bush lottery. Yeah, we've been getting a little bit of here in New South Wales. Speaking with the police, I've seen some of the pictures so, here. So they enter, they will enter into a pen and whatever, and they will just take machetes and start, start chopping up this animal while it's still alive. And uh, uh, we have a lot of that. And uh, what we found in, in the cases of cattle, uh, normally around about between four and six heads of cattle are slaughtered in, uh, in the felt at night and then removed. And then in, in, in the case of sheep, it will go to amounts like 40, 50 that's just been slaughtered. Uh, the skin is just left there and they're gone with all the meat. So uh, 
it's one of those things. I mean, it's as I say, if you don't have a tough stomach, don't watch it. I mean, mm. it's not beautiful to see. It's 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 awful. And yeah, uh, what we've seen with this is is, uh, is the the you can clearly see the motors of Randy, and you know exactly it's the same bunch of guys doing it all over because. Uh, I mean, they just simply leave their marks all over. Uh, it's just like you always see is, yeah, when you get to this crime scene, this is how it looks. This is where they leave the knife. This is what they do with the cow's udder. This is what they do with the, bull, with the bull's genitals. And so they leave it always in the same place, the same manner. Mm. So you do know it's the same group of people that's doing it. And uh, what we've seen is, is because in, in, in our case, it's more around the bigger cities. But what we've seen as well as in Discovery is that they move a lot around. The moment that we start focusing on one area, they just move to the others. If they move, if they operating in the south at the moment and we start focusing there, they will move to the west. The moment you move to the west, they will start to move to the east of the city. So, uh, that we've seen, but I will show. I, I will send Kyle some pictures uh, on this, and you guys can can show it to the world whenever you want to, mm. because it's 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 public. Um, it's publicly available, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I need to look at this stuff every week, and it's uh, it's not good. As my wife always says, it's just deleted from my phone. Yeah. Please, mm. it, it serves. To, yeah, it really serves to underscore how multitudinal this issue is, it's not simply a sheep being stolen, but as you say, there's the devastation, the financial devastation to the, uh, to the farmer, the social impacts on them. There's the biosecurity issues. If the fleece and the carcass has been left and the meat's being taken, there's no sort of oversight with food safety and hygiene standards at all either. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing, and I think, Dressing uh, Smith just did a paper, I think last year, on the emotional impact of the crimes on farmers. And I do think it's something that we all need to start looking at because but I do think that the emotional impact is much, much, much larger, much larger than any one of us can actually uh, uh, determine or imagine. And uh, I would think that we will need to start looking at that. Yeah, coming out of From the New South Wales. academic point of view, yeah. Coming out of the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey, you had about 20% indicated victimization of harm to their animals, but a much, much higher percent, over 50, of actual fear of harm for their animals. So that is one of their primary concerns is the harm being brought about by whether it be the legal hunting issues or, or the trespassing or the actual theft mm -hmm. of the cattle and things like that. So, And a, a great initiative from a few years ago that was rolled out by certain police officers here in Victoria were setting up farm crime expos where they'd gather together uh, people who are selling different technologies uh, that have presentations from the police, from local government, from the Farmers Federation. But importantly too, they got the local health networks to come along and talk about particularly men's health. Some of those mm. things, you know, old blokes particularly are not going to uh, open up about their emotions and, uh, and confront some of those things openly. Uh, and it's a real, real problem. Mm. No, I just think we need to look at those things. But, um, yeah. just, just to contextualize for, for people watching, in New South Wales, uh, an average between 2015 and 2020 was 1,800 cattle stolen and 16,000 sheep stolen. And at about 4 million a year, that doesn't take into account on costs, but a little bit of a difference there between uh, the South African context. Yeah. And, and, and I do think, and, but we, as from a Western point of view and uh, more the West, uh, the European Eurocentric way, is there's, there's regions that we don't focus on. Mm. And uh, there's one region in, in called the Karamoja region, which is in, um, it's in Kenya, Uganda, and in Ethiopia, in, in that area which is the area in the world with the most cry, uh, livestock prone area and where livestock is not stolen, it's robbed by gunfire. So, uh, 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 I mean, a lot of people don't know about this, 
but there's a lot of animals stolen there simply just by gunpoint. It's wrong. It's not animal. It's not theft. It's robbery. Mm. So, uh, uh, yeah, I do think we don't always realize how big and what the magnitude of this crime in the world is because a lot of it just gets swept under the carpet and we tend to forget about it. So is that, uh, is that robbery, is that occurring on the farm or is it also occurring when people are transporting vehicles? So it's like modern-day bush ranging. Any, any, and in any manner, uh, Alistair. They, they, they do, uh, as we would say, hijack vehicles. They do simply just go into, because, I mean, if you go that part of Africa, uh, there's no cities or whatever. It's real rural areas. They would just come with a gun and they would um, uh, hold up these people and just take all the animals from the fence. And yeah. there they go. Uh, things do happen. And, uh, well, because livestock theft and the research on livestock theft is my passion, uh, I always ask the question is, why don't we see more of this? Why don't we see more research on this? because it's a rural crime that really affects a lot of people. But, yeah, I do think that rural is uh, currently captivating our minds. We are thinking rural, uh, and a lot of um, our academics are starting to think rural, but not specific crimes. And our focus is on violence and violence against women in rural areas and those kind of things, but, yeah, uh, as a farmer myself, as I do think I look, I have a little bit of a difference towards these things. And I can, can you uh, speak a little bit about that? I was trying to touch on that at the beginning, your experience in farming, how that plays into your research, maybe any of your own experiences with farm crime yourself? You know, as, um, yeah, I've been farming for the past like, 36 years. Um, on a part-time basis, uh, and uh, I, did, I do have the opportunity to, to be on the farm quite frequently. Uh, I mean, I travel between the university and the farm uh, very often, and I tend to stay there quite often. But when we look at farm crimes, uh, I mean, I'm interested in the whole livestock phenomenon. That's my interest. But all around me, uh, there's a lot of other crimes that occurs and what's a big problem in South Africa. Uh, our biggest concern in the South African sense of, is the violence against farmers. I mean, the amount of farmers getting killed uh, on their farms, farm workers, and, and then, uh, those, that's a big uh, uh, issue for us, is the whole uh, issue of violence. Uh, I had... Uh, the unfortunate opportunity three years ago when my neighbor was murdered on his farm, uh, which is just two kilometers from my house, a big friend of mine. And, and you need to go through this emotions. I mean, and, and I don't think we always realize the big emotions and this. And then uh, another big problem we currently have in South Africa is, um, uh, is, is, is the theft of scrap metal and the theft of copper cables and those from irrigation systems. But that's a big problem. Then pesticides uh, in, in the grain producing areas, that's a big problem, seeds stolen. And then uh, what we currently also see a lot is vandalism. As, as people just getting into a farm, uh, into a shed and they will just start uh, they will vandalize the, the, the equipment, the tractors, and they would vandalize like the batteries and whatever. For whatever reasons, we don't know. Uh, those are the things that's really are getting us. And then uh, I do think that's where we share a lot with the UK and those kind of people, and I do think with Australia as well, mm. is diesel theft. I mean, that's a big, 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 big problem uh, all over the world as uh, fuels that's been stolen. And, uh, yeah, you asked me how I, how I experience it from a farming point of view is I do think that when it gets to crime, I, I tend to put more than a farmer hat on my head on them than an academic hat. And yeah, uh, yeah you, you get more aggravated uh, about the whole, uh, 
about crime and then you start questioning the police and you start questioning mm. about the efficiency of the police and where are they and why don't they respond and I think it's normal but uh, I must acknowledge as I enjoy both worlds I think uh, yeah. the, 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 the farming uh, I mean being a farmer is, is great um, but also doing the academic side yeah. is just as um, rewarding yeah, Carl and I have been discussing this notion of praxis and, and yeah. practice and the importance of, of having uh, colleagues in academia who straddle both fields. And it's all about, of course, uh, engagement and importantly, too, around policy change and change to practice, whether it's policing or farmers' behaviour or mm. uh, motivating non-government organisations like the Red Stock uh, of the Red Meat Authority and other organisations to step up and do uh, what they possibly can to address the issue. Yeah. yeah. It must be so insightful to, to straddle both sides too because, you know, the primary uh, reason here for not reporting is, ah, the police won't do anything about it. I reported to the stock squad four years ago, still waiting on a phone call, was a quote I got. <laughs> and so you know, having some empathy uh, and, and actual real understanding of that, because then the police say, well, if you don't report it, we can't do anything about it. And us as academics say, well, look at the reporting. It's abysmal. You need to report more for resources. But if you have reported and you've been continually let down, you can see where that kind of deflation of tires would come in and the lack of confidence and the absence of confidence would just continue that, that, that cycle. Uh, I fully agree with your whole um, summary on that one, Kyle, is, is I just had a meeting last week um, we had a big complaint from a specific area, farming area, close where I'm farming, uh, close now 100 kilometers away. But these guys were, and they set up a list of 50 cases that uh, they have a big problem with. And I looked at the list and I saw this list and it was cases from 2011. Uh, which is 10 years down the line. <laughs> a decade, a decade These guys old, yeah. are still inquiring about it. And then mm. we just set up a, a big meeting with the police and prosecutors and whatever just to determine that these, these cases were all closed as undetected. Yeah. But the victim was never informed. Yeah. So for they have never received any closure. So my argument with the police was as all this guy wants to know is what happened. If it's undetected, just inform him. Yeah. It will provide closure. And oftentimes it is just that having that, that dialogue, that communication, isn't it? But yeah. also yeah. also importantly, a recognition that it's no single person or organization's responsibility for crime prevention. Mm. The police have a role, farmers themselves have a role. And, and I think just thinking around crime prevention, um, uh, in a recent book that I edited last year, you wrote a chapter and it's really quite groundbreaking because what you did was take those Cornish and Clark's 25 situation crime prevention uh, measures, which a lot of people uh, listening and watching will be familiar with, but then applying it specifically to livestock theft. And I'm just wondering on that, whether maybe you could just nominate, what are the, say, the top two or three things that farms themselves can do to protect mm. themselves from livestock theft? You know what I do think when it gets to the 25 uh, key issues in, in the situation of crime prevention is the first stage is the most important. Count your animals on a regular basis. Mark your animals. And leave your footprints on your farm. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those are the three most important. The rest will take care of themselves if those three are in place. Yes, because it's very difficult for the police to operate on some sketchy information. Oh, I think it could have been 10, it could have been 20, I'm not too sure. Mm. I counted them only um, six months ago. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's near on impossible for them to actually do an investigation then, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Those, are, those are the three most important ones. I want them more. I mean, there's this... Uh, you can, I mean, just to take it by, by an example is, if I phone the police and say, uh, they've stolen my sheep. The first question is, how much? I don't know. 
What's the attitude of the police officer on the other side if you say, I don't? Yeah, it must not be that important to you. By means of your example now, it may be 10, it may be 20. Hmm. Oh, and the other challenge. But, but if you call the police officer and say, you know what, I count my cattle on a regular basis, I counted them on day X, I counted them again today, and this is what happened. Uh, this is the, the, the scene that I'm seeing. I've seen fences cut and whatever, and it's cut this morning, and da da da, and there's 15 lost or 15 run. What's the police officer's attitude? This guy knows his business. He knows what's going on. I'm going there. I have a 90% chance of success in this case. Mm. So I'm going to put all my efforts in there. The other, the other challenge, of course, is actually putting a monetary figure on on the loss. So it could be a, a woolly animal on four legs, but it also could be a key uh, stud yeah. ram. And how do you take into account all those sunk costs? You know, the years and years and years of building up a bloodline. How do you actually put that, uh, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, but, but, now you're, but now you're opening another can of worms uh, in, 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 in your argument is, is because uh, what we've seen in the courts in South Africa, uh, and this is now from uh, the defense side, is the argument of be between value and price. Yeah. Uh, uh, how do you, uh, and then they get into these farmers in, in cross-examination and asking them, how did you determine the value? What is the science behind it? Uh, and then all of a sudden farmers start uh, backpedaling because they cannot answer those questions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as, as we can have a big argument about bloodlines and uh, what we've lost, and but it's all imaginary value. Yeah. It's it's not real value. And of course, so, the, those negative experiences at the court will then go through the um the grapevine, and other farmers yeah. will be in turn reluctant mm -hmm. to report because they don't want to have to go through that process themselves. It becomes a vicious yeah. circle. Mm. So what, what we uh, and that's why I say price and and, and and value is two different definitions. And so now what we do in South Africa currently is, is the value we did, we or the, the price we attach to a to a stolen livestock is, is we decided many many years ago we go on an average. Mm. So if it's your most expensive bull or your most low value cow or a little calf is we've got one price for all. Uh, and that's normally what we would say, uh, de depending on our grading system. I mean, Australia has got a different grading system than South Africa as we and, and classification systems. But in our case, it's a, a patent cow that's, pre that's prepared to be slaughtered. Mm. That's the value for the price that we take on average. And uh, that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's how we go about mm. Yeah. But so th there's another argument that we can go and research value mm. and, and price. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Alistair. So I was going to say, if you're the uh, if you're the relevant minister for a day, what is a one piece of legislation you might change that would improve circumstances in South Africa? No, it is. It's a very. It's an easy answer. I would update the laws because all our current legislation is old. They're old-fashioned, and uh, they didn't keep up with mm. new developments in the world, with new technology. So we have the laws, but they're not up-to-date anymore. And I do think there's, uh, this is also something that distinguishes us from like Australia. In Australia, I mean, livestock theft is just a common theft. It's it's. But in South Africa, we have a, a Stop Fifth Act. Mm. There's a whole piece of legislation on, on, on Stop Fifth. And those have become, uh, they are old, they're not applicable anymore. So I would change that and, and make it more, more, more applicable. Uh, 
I think the thing that catalyzed this conversation and got it going in the beginning was you sent me an article of a man who was sentenced to quite a significant punishment for stealing cattle. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, I sent you that one. It was, I think, eight years uh, imprisonment for 10 years of cattle or whatever. Yeah, so are the mechanisms much more punitive in South Africa, the response to this type of theft than, say, just your traditional normal theft with under this different act? Or how, how were they able to give such a punitive uh, penalty for stock theft? You know, in that particular case that I sent you, uh, it's a repeat offender. So uh, you go through your motions uh, and you look at the value of the, or the price of the animals in this case, uh, it does require a regional court to, to hear the case. And when you get to regional courts, they have a much higher jurisdiction. They can sentence up to 15 years, uh, where your normal district's courts can only um, sentence up to three years. So. In this guy's case, we're talking about repeat offender, the value, et cetera, and he goes to the regional court. And this judge would simply just say this, I had enough. Uh, and, and I'm going to, as, but what we had is, uh, I wrote a paper on this one. The, um, it's called uh, Environmental Theories in, 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 uh, in Livestock Theft. I think it was 2013. I wrote a paper on, on a case that we had of a guy that stole, um, my mind serves me right now, 168 of cattle, I don't know how many goats and sheep and whatever. And then he got sentenced to 80 years in prison. Uh, he got a 12 year sentence for four, 12 year sentence each for uh, cattle stolen and then he got four years for all the cases on goat theft and sheep theft, but uh, in essence, it was an, an 80 year sentence that he received. It was um, combined to a 16 years sentence, effective, uh, 12 years for all the cattle that he stolen and then four years for all the, uh, this was in 2013. And we just learned that he was released from prison due to COVID. Mm. So now, you all are, when you get to your farming community, it says, you know what, this guy's been sentenced to eight years, 16 years effective. It's eight years down the line. He's out on the streets again. And uh, yeah, we, don't, we do know that he's busy stealing again. Yeah, and, yeah. Going back to what you opened up with about the kind of career criminal um, yeah. trajectory, it seems, in South Africa. Yeah. So uh, uh, we do get these lengthy sentences, but in, in, in essence, uh, they're not that severe. That's, that one that I sent you that time. Yeah, it was uh, a one-off. Yeah. yeah uh, but, yeah, we get the, the, like very often the six years and the five years and, uh, and those kind of sentences. But uh, from my, if I put my farming uh, uh, hat on, I would say it's not enough. You can put them away for 20 years. Yeah. And, but if I put my academic hat on, I say, yes. you know what, yeah. I think it's a severe sentence. Right? And that's the interesting nexus that you're at. You know, if you, it's easy to be impartial when it doesn't impact you. It's very difficult to, you know, make a value judgment when it actually, you know, is a financial, emotional, psychological impact. And it's, it's hard to stay distant from, from that, I could imagine. It, it, is, it is just difficult to imagine these things and whatever, because the, the irony about it is that I am uh, the organizer, organizer of a webinar, uh, which is going to be hosted in June on... Uh, the excessive use of imprisonment in South Africa. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's the one hat that you wear, and then you have this other hat that just wants to put these guys away forever and they never want to see them again. 
Yeah. It, it all gets back to evidence, does evidence basis, doesn't it? And that's yeah. uh, really what we're all about. And we're almost full circle to where we started here and, and thinking about how ineffective imprisonment is as a deterrent, but also how effective it is as a university of, um, of criminality. Yeah, but thinking from the farmer's perspective too, there's a, pla- there's a place for retribution um, you know, and that desire to see an offender not punished because it's going to make them better, but just to punish them for the behavior yeah. and the harm cost. And that's the tricky part. Like when we were at the town hall, Alistair, launching the Center for Rural Criminology, that's what a few of the farmers piped up and were saying, right? Like, I want to see more punishment. And the, the whole point was because I want to see them to get their just desserts, you know, oh, an, eye anecdot- for an eye for an eye kind yeah. of thing. Oh, and anecdotally here in Victoria, it's um, uh, the, the volume of farmers who are really uh, frustrated when they think that, quote, they've just got a slap on the wrist end, quote. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, uh, it becomes a real, real issue. Yeah, which well, then goes back to your point, blurs the whole conversation even about evidence and whether this works and what we can do and all those types of things. Uh, uh, I mean, I just think that uh, if we look at the whole issue of, of phenology and we look at punishment and all those kind of things, uh, uh, it's one thing that we will never agree on. And I do think the fact that it's such an individual decision uh, by an individual person uh, will always bother our minds. Yeah. How does this person really determine what is he going to do with this criminal? I mean, it's a mind thing. We have all these theories, we have all these uh, elements that need to be taken into account and the factors and the personal circumstances and whatever, all those kind of things. But in the end, it remains an individual decision as to what is the punishment going to be. And and that's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's a difficult uh, situation and depends very much on sentencing guidelines and things like that, which will be different in different jurisdictions. And yeah, but if there's a lot of judicial independence around the decision-making factor and going back to the farmer, that's why they at least traditionally used to keep I guess the victim's perspective um, uh, off to the side almost entirely. So as not to conflate emotion with, with, with trying to come to a, 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 a air quotes, appropriate punishment for the particular offense. Mm. Now. Yeah. So Alistair's right. I think we've come pretty full circle. Alistair, did you have anything you wanted to add on that or anything that we've missed from your end? Oh, I think just the uh, just underlining of the the key takeaway message from oh that I've taken from the conversation here is that uh, we know a lot, but there's a lot more that we could know. Mm. And I think for people who are listening or watching to this podcast or podcast and interested in uh, research, then there's any number of opportunities wherever you happen to be in the world, um, so that we can continue to build our body of knowledge. Yeah. Willie, what I'll do is on the description of this video, I'll add a few of your recent papers that we've talked about. That way any viewers can actually go and explore the issue in South Africa and your work a little bit further. But before we end, is there any kind of topics or or issues that we haven't covered that you think might be really interesting or important that we could touch on? I think we covered a lot. Uh, And uh... Maybe I will think of others uh, in future and I will get back to you guys and say, I think we can talk about this, we can talk about that. But it was a good, on- it was a good opportunity just to in- introduce it to the world. To yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. For the rest to see. Yeah, very important. And Ixbrek Kleinbeach in Nederlands. And I know Nederlands is close with Afrikaans, so I might be able to understand a little bit of those papers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I do think Afrikaans is one of those difficult languages in the sense that it's it's a big combination, uh, a little bit of dominance from the Netherlands, but there's a big dominance of English. Yeah. Uh, and it's just uh, we we spell the words exactly the same. It's just the pronunciations that uh, that there's a difference, and then you have the influences of all the uh, traditional languages in the country. So. Uh, it's not that easy to understand, but um, <laughs> did you say it's, is it, did you say it's it's written similar to Dutch though? No, it's it's not that. No, 
No, it's not that similar. But, uh, and, and what, what I've found for myself is, is if you try and put it into Google Translate, yeah, doesn't happen. that's the biggest yeah. method that you will ever find. So, yeah. uh, I try that with uh, Dutch and that doesn't work either. So my partner's yeah. Dutch, so I get a lot of Dutch coming through and uh, now nah, Google Translate's mm -hmm. not much of your friend. But uh, what, what, what we can do is if you do see something and you are interested in like a title or whatever, then mm. give me a shout and we can talk about it. Okay, you can give me the Coles notes of it, the short description. Yeah, yes. we can do that. Fair enough. But, uh, but thanks for spending your Monday evening. I mean, for me, it's still morning. Yeah, yeah, and, it's 5.15 uh, over here, so. Yeah, no, no, yeah, it's what, 9.15, and uh, I sat and watched the Masters last night. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah. I overstayed my welcome in front of the TV last night. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big I hockey hope. fan, so I'm all too all too familiar with staying up at two in the morning to watch a game, especially during uh, playoffs. <laughs> yeah, but you're too Canadian then. That's it. Can't help myself. And sometimes it's nice. It ends up being Sunday morning uh, with your coffee instead of Saturday night with too many beers. So it works out better for one's health. Much better. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, thanks so much for this okay. conversation. It's something we wanted to get together for a long time. Something that's near to dear to Alistair and, and my heart as well and, and the research we do. So uh, thanks so much for providing us with your insight and knowledge. It's absolutely fascinating. The work you do is amazing. And uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing more and having further conversations. Okay. I will pass on some photos to you guys. Good on you. Thanks so much, Willie. Sounds good. Thanks, Willie. Bye. See you, you guys. Bye. 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 Talk soon. Bye. Thank you.